Hello, welcome to What Crime Is It? I am Cassidy and I am your host. On Sunday, September 5th, 1982, in the suburb of West Des Moines, Iowa, a 12-year-old paperboy named Johnny Gosh was abducted in the early morning hours, mere blocks from his home. This was a shocking crime. It changed precedent and national abduction legislation. It would introduce the unthinkable depravity of child trafficking, slavery, child pornography, and would go on to uncover a global pedophile ring with alleged connections to foreign billionaires and the highest offices in our own government. The trail leads to many dark and faraway places, but always seems to wind right back around to the small bedroom community where it happened. So like most of you true crime addicts, when I get hooked on a story, I want to know everything. And this case has plenty of everything. While that's a problem, I also think it might be part of the solution. There are a lot of rabbit holes, and I don't plan to get us too lost down those, but I think it would be remiss to not at least tour around a bit. I'm also going to talk about Noreen Gosh, a woman who has more conflicting information out there than almost anyone I've ever seen. You will form your own opinion about Noreen because I plan to be objective, but before I do that, let me be clear. It is your host's opinion that what any parent of an abducted child does to keep that child's name in the press could be seen as being deceptive, but also could be seen as a person who has had every single rule of common decency that exists between humans violated. And therefore, rules no longer apply. I mean, the boundaries are gone. You've had literally the worst thing that could ever happen to you happen to you. So are you going to play by the rules? So let's start with Noreen. Noreen was born August 27th, 1943. All information that I've been able to find suggests that she was from Iowa originally. It was there that she was married young and had two children, one boy and one girl. Tragically, Noreen's husband was diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer, which in itself would have been a devastating blow for any young newlywed with two kids. But just two months before her husband lost his battle, a tornado ripped through her town, destroying everything Noreen owned, leaving both of her children buried beneath the wreckage. She tells the story of pulling up the smashed boards and shattered remains that were strewn across her property. She was screaming their names, frantically looking for them. I mean, thankfully, she was able to pull them both to safety. And within a matter of weeks, she had to face not only rebuilding her entire life, but also her future as a newly single parent. A couple of years later, Noreen would be introduced by mutual friends to retired Marine John Gosh. Their friends thought that the two of them should start dating again, both single again, I guess, after divorce and being widowed. And they got along. They were right. They began dating, eventually got married, and on November 12, 1969, welcomed John David Gosh to the world. Johnny would be the only child from their union. They bought a home in the affluent suburb of West Des Moines, a family-oriented community with low crime. Johnny was a kind and loving boy, being raised by mature parents who were financially stable, Noreen was able to stay home, and Johnny was given plenty of love and attention and enjoyed the little extras that they were able to provide, like a boat parked on the lake for him to invite friends on every weekend. He was growing fast and filling out, standing taller than his friends, 
At 12 years of age, Johnny could have easily been mistaken for a boy of 15. His older half-sister had moved out by this point. She was attending college and had gotten engaged. His older half-brother wouldn't be far behind. Johnny was described as a happy kid. He was a Boy Scout who enjoyed camping with his troop. He was generous and loved to give thoughtful gifts to his family for Christmas, even borrowing a few dollars from his dad if he had emptied his own piggy bank in order to get the perfect present for mom. He liked to water ski and take his dog Gretchen for walks. On September 3rd, 1982, the Gosh family went to watch their oldest son play some Friday night football. At some point, Johnny asked to go to the concession stand for popcorn. And because it was visible from their seats and the bleachers, his parents said it was okay. A few moments later, Noreen looked over to see where Johnny was in line and noticed that he wasn't there. So John Sr. got up to see where his son had gone. Within a short time, he had found Johnny underneath the bleachers, speaking to a West Des Moines police officer. According to Noreen, John Sr. called his son away and they returned to their seats. When the game was over, the Gosh family saw the same policeman standing by the exit gate and Johnny reportedly said, that's the policeman I was talking to. I may want to be a police officer someday. According to his mother, that was the extent of the conversation and then the family headed home together. The next day, the Gosh daughter visited from college with her new fiance. Noreen prepared a family dinner, often referring to this meal as the Last Supper. In accounts made by Noreen, it was while she was doing the dishes that Johnny mentioned his early morning paper route, a job he'd had for a little over a year with the Des Moines Register. He'd originally wanted the job in order to save up enough money to buy a motorbike, which he managed to do and was very proud of. Being a paperboy during that time was serious business, not only a job of high responsibility, but also high demand, so Johnny took it very seriously, knowing that he would be fined by the register for any late papers, and easily replaced by another boy should he not live up to the task. So he commented that he'd have to go to bed soon if he was going to be up bright and early to deliver those Sunday papers. Johnny then asked if it would be okay if he went alone to deliver the papers in the morning. And this is where the stories begin to conflict somewhat. For many years, the story we were told was that John Sr. had always accompanied Johnny on his route. The story went on to say that John Sr. said yes, Johnny could go alone this time, but that Noreen said no. She wouldn't be comfortable with that. It was still dark when Johnny left in the morning, and regardless of how close his route was to their home, the agreement was that Johnny needed to have an adult present. This story was never disputed by John Sr. until recently, when John Sr., claimed that he did not always go with Johnny, that he sometimes went with Johnny, and that he sometimes went alone. In the original account given, after Noreen said no, Johnny agreed to wake up his dad before he headed out in the morning, and that before he went to bed, Johnny turned around, hugged Noreen, and said, you're the best mom. Also in Noreen's original account, for several weeks on Saturday night, early Sunday morning, the Gosh house would have a prank phone call at 1.35 a.m., the way that she said it would happen was John Sr. would always answer because the phone was on his side of the bed. He'd say, hello, wait in silence for a response, and when no one would respond on the other end, he would hang up. Week after week, Noreen would wake up, ask who it was, and John Sr. would say, wrong number. Now, I remember getting prank phone calls as a kid. We had a landline always in our house, and we would get prank phone calls. You would get them a lot. I couldn't imagine, though, if my mom or my dad had gotten calls like that every Saturday night for weeks on end at 1.30 in the morning 
with just silence on the other end that it wouldn't have been made a bigger deal in the house. You know, you get one or two, sometimes you get repeat ones. There was a guy for a while when I was a kid calling up our house saying, hi, honey. I remember that. It was so creepy, but it stopped at some point. But I don't think that my mom would have ignored a weekly phone call. But there you go. On September 5th, 1982, Noreen said that the phone rang again at 1.30 a.m. This time her husband answered, but she heard him speak. He said, yeah, okay, all right. And then he hung up. Who is that? Noreen asked. Wrong number, he replied. Noreen remembers saying, well, you don't have a conversation with the wrong number, but also said that it wasn't really something worth disrupting her sleep over, so she drifted off again. And this was the official story for decades. Recently, however, John Sr. denied receiving any such phone calls, either that night nor in the preceding weeks. He now says he does not remember getting any of the calls that Noreen describes. I do have some interesting information, though, about late-night phone calls that will be presented in a later portion of this case. Be that as it may, let's continue with the original account. At 7 a.m. on Sunday the 5th, Noreen was awakened again by the phone. This time it was their neighbor, asking why he hadn't received their Sunday paper. Noreen put the phone down and checked Johnny's bedroom down the hall. Maybe he had overslept, but he wasn't there. John Sr. was there, however, and when asked why he was there, he said that Johnny hadn't woken him up before he left that morning, but that he'd go out now and he'd find him in the neighborhood. Maybe he was just a little behind and needed a hand. John Sr., again in mixed reports, described seeing the wagon with the papers out in the neighborhood, but no Johnny. He then went home. By then, the neighbors had begun calling like crazy, asking where their papers were. I mean, Sunday paper was a really big deal, and the fact that it wasn't there was a very, very bad thing. So they were calling her house, obviously not knowing that something was wrong, just knowing that they hadn't gotten their papers. So John Sr., I guess not wanting to upset the neighbors, decided that he would take the papers and he would go and deliver them while Noreen called the police. It was during this time that their miniature dachshund, Gretchen, who Johnny had taken along for the walk with him, reappeared at the house. It took 45 minutes for the police to arrive, despite the fact that, you know, the Gosh home apparently was 10 blocks from the station. While she waited, Noreen took matters into her own hands, a pattern you'll see repeated throughout this story, both because of Noreen's nature and also because she was given no other choice. She proceeded to get the names and numbers of all of the boys who had been out delivering papers that morning by the district manager of the Des Moines Register, who was in charge of the routes in that area. All of the boys would meet in one location to pick up their papers, fold them, and then would head off for their deliveries. So since he had picked up his papers, Noreen hoped the boys could tell her what else they knew. But Johnny's pickup location had changed, and again, there are now conflicting accounts of which way he walked that morning and where he precisely was at any given moment. But suffice it to say, it was all within blocks of his home in the neighborhood where they lived. So we don't know exactly. One person said he cut through a backyard that morning. Another person said he walked down 86th Street. We don't have exact information about that. There's been, you know, we'll go further into it. But supposedly his pickup location had changed. So it's possible that he walked in slightly a different direction that morning. But by the time that the police arrived, Noreen had spoken to all of the boys, according to her, except for one. A 44-year-old attorney had picked up his son's papers for him that morning. What she learned was significant and terrifying. As Johnny left the corner where he picked up his papers, he pulled his red wagon, 
like he always did with Gretchen in the back, a man was seen in a two-tone blue-on-blue sedan resembling a Mercury Zephyr or Ford Fairmont 1981 or 1982 model. He reportedly asked Johnny for directions to 86th Street. Johnny, perhaps sensing something off with the man, yelled across the street to his neighbor, John Rossi, Hey, can you help this guy? Mr. Rossi, a man approximately in his 30s at the time, insinuated later that the driver of the car was in some kind of an altered state that one might have achieved through cocaine or amphetamine. He used descriptors such as wired, wide-eyed, and, quote, not sleepy. When Johnny alerted Mr. Rossi, the man in the car quickly pulled away. It's suspected that he drove around the block, came back, and this time, when no adults were present, he pulled over, opened his passenger door, and it's reported that someone, whether it was the driver or someone in the passenger seat, that part isn't clear, had swung their feet out of the car and began talking to the paper boys as they dispersed toward their routes. Noreen was told that Johnny said to one of the other boys that he didn't really feel comfortable around the man and that he was going home. She also told the police that as the boys left one by one, a 16-year-old young man was left folding his remaining papers on the corner. He reported seeing Johnny walking away, pulling his wagon toward the next corner. He claimed that the man in the blue car turned his engine on and before pulling away, flipped his dome light three times. It was at that time, the boy said, when another man appeared from between two houses and began walking in the same direction as Johnny. Johnny turned left at the corner, as did the man on foot. Now, unable to see Johnny anymore, the next thing the young man said he heard was a car door slam and the screeching of tires. He said he saw that same blue car again running a stop sign, and then it turned left toward the interstate. So it must have come back around and took off toward the interstate. There are also reports that during this window of time, another group of paper boys saw Johnny slumped in his wagon, looking sick or unconscious. So what's confusing about this detail for me is that it is included in some, but not all accounts given by Noreen and also others who have covered this case. So if it is true, I do find it odd that the boys would have seen Johnny in that state and just kept walking slumped over, looking passed out in his wagon. Um, I, I don't know what to make of that, honestly. The boys described the man in the blue car as having short, dark hair and a thin mustache with slurred speech. Later, it was described as an East Coast tough guy manner of speech, sort of like Goodfellas or if you've ever seen any of those gangster films. I'm from the East Coast, and so I kind of understand what that is. But I can also understand that some of these boys who are from the Midwest may have never heard an accent like that before, so they might have heard it as sort of slurred. Um, yeah, So, but I'm, I'm thinking that it was probably like a, he dropped his R's, like that sort of tough guy talk. A neighbor uh, named Mike also later reported that he observed Gosh talking to a stocky man in a blue two-toned Ford Fairmont with Nebraska plates. Mike did not know what was discussed because he was observing from his bedroom window. Uh, as Gosh headed home, Mike too noticed another man following him. The witness, John Rossi, who Johnny had summoned from across the street, underwent hypnosis and told police some of the numbers of the license plate that he had seen, and it was from Warren County, Iowa. So there are two opposing reports now, one that the car had Iowa plates and one that it had Nebraska plates. 
And because both are easily searchable online, I found two plates from that time period, and I'm going to put them up here. You can see that they don't look anything alike. Most recently, questions have been raised about multiple cars being in the neighborhood that morning, as well as a strange van parked outside of a neighbor's home. After it sat there for some time, it was approached by another car and then loaded with something wrapped in a blanket before it took off. Of course, the speculation there is that it could have been Johnny. So despite the eyewitness information, the officers asked Noreen if Johnny had ever run away before. Insisting he hadn't run away before and he wasn't a runaway now, she was already beginning to sense a lack of urgency that concerned her. I had all that information before the police ever walked into the house. Um, we weren't prepared for what was going to happen next, and that was basically nothing. I mean, it was up to John and I at that point in time to go to the press and beg for help in, in having them show Johnny's picture so that people knew he was missing. Um, there was not the adequate measures taken initially. The policy in 1982 was that 72 hours had to pass before Johnny could even be classified as a missing person, a law that Noreen would be very instrumental in changing years later. With no time to waste, Noreen and John recruited the help of friends and concerned citizens to form search parties in the surrounding parks and wooded areas. They turned their house into a command center and began selling candy bars and holding garage sales to raise money for posters and private investigators. By all accounts, police wanted off the case because Noreen was so outspoken and relentless, never letting any amount of time go by without calling and visiting the chief of police. Chief Orville Cooney was a particular critic of Noreen's tactics. Her media appearances called regular attention to his incompetence with the handling of Johnny's abduction. She claimed that during an organized search of a local park, Chief Cooney showed up drunk with a bullhorn, telling everyone to go home. A group of searchers, approximately 20 of them, came back to the house, and they were extremely angry. And the one man who was kind of the spokesperson for this search party said, I thought you people wanted help. And I said, well, we do. And he said, well, we're out searching the state park. And out of it came the police chief, Orville Cooney, who was drunk, stood up on top of a picnic table with a megaphone, one of those bullhorns, and he yelled at the crowd and he said, all of you people go on home. This kid is nothing but a damn runaway. When asked about her harsh characterizations, Chief Cooney told reporters, I don't give a damn what Noreen Gosh has to say. But eventually, Orville Cooney's incompetence and corruption would catch up with him. The Des Moines Tribune reports 18 officers making allegations against Chief Cooney, including doing police work after drinking, fixing the tickets of friends and relatives, being racially prejudiced, and interfering with a department investigation against one of his sons. Both Cooney and Mayor George Mills say the actions of this many officers in a 37-person department cannot be ignored. He would resign six months later, in 1983. And according to Noreen, the FBI was not much better. I called the FBI myself. They said, well, we'll be over in a couple of days if they don't find the kid. Finally, on the third day, they sent two special agents to our home, Deb Maul and David Oxler. They sat at our kitchen table, and they said, we will not be entering the case. And I said, why not? And he said, well, the police chief, Orville Cooney, says that he doesn't really need our help. 
we were told by government agencies, well, you have to prove that child's in danger. To us, he's a runaway until you prove he's in danger. You can almost become catatonic. You can almost go into a state of mind where you don't want to talk to anybody ever again. Not trust anybody ever again. That's our boy's life. But if Johnny wasn't a runaway, then what? It was at this time that Noreen and much of the public at large began to hear and learn the definition of the word pedophile. Public events that were held in the area to educate the community on this safety hazard to their children went largely underpromoted by local press and unattended by residents. Unfortunately, the community didn't want to learn about such unthinkable things in 1982, and although it wasn't a new phenomenon necessarily, it was definitely a new concept of polite society. Sadly, though, this lack of education on the subject meant that some disturbing information was being withheld from the good people of Des Moines, Iowa, details that have only been uncovered in recent years. For instance, several convicted pedophiles were employed at the Des Moines Register during the 1970s and 80s. Some became incarcerated during their tenure at the Des Moines Register and then even rehired after serving time for their crimes against minors. Convicted pedophiles as well as their sex offender friends and family members were put in direct charge and given access to the paper boys who were under their employ. Late night phone calls, inappropriate advances, the man in the blue car, and another missing paper boy. Next time on What Crime Is It?